Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, or something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the Pinnacle American Editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Louise Jameson and I play Leela on Doctor Who. Well, way back in the day, that is. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the monstrous task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Yes, we've done that one before. <laughs> Talk to my lawyer if you need to. I don't care. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally monstrous four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. We also have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. And finally, we have a fan who probably has a model scarazin somewhere in his house right now, the tantalizing Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hello. And no, I don't have a model Scarison, but I do have a Zygon action figure. <laughs> of course you do. The next best thing. <laughs> well, so do I. I can actually see it across the room right now. And oh my God, it's just turned and looked at me. No, that's just because I don't have my glasses on. Never mind. Sorry. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine why, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, 
Since we know you have so many of them, you keep them in a secret vault underneath Loch Ness. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay in the virtual air. I'm going to miss this spiel. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons. Deep breath. <gasps> Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. Thank you. I can't believe I did that in one breath. <laughs> we also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of the first story of the second season of the Tom Baker era and our last story of the season for this podcast with Terrence Stick's novelization of... The Loch Ness Monster. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster, adapted by Terrence Sticks from the script Hair of the Zygons by Robert Banks Stewart, that aired from 83075 to 92075, published by Target Books in January 1976. As of this recording in October of 2020, this title is currently in print as a facsimile edition from BBC Books, 127 pages. Now, as we said last time, the original story that this was based on, Terror of the Zygons, was made as part of the previous recording block, even though it started off the new season, which is why this book reads more like a season finale than a season opener, because that's what it was intended to be. It's doubtful that the reputation of Revenge of the Cybermen would have been improved, being the penultimate rather than the ultimate story of season 12, but you can't have everything. Fans didn't have to wait all that long, though, because the previous story had just finished up in May, and this one started airing in August, which makes our current wait between seasons feel even longer. Although this was not Ian Martyr's last appearance as Harry, since he would return for the Android Invasion in the same season, that's one of the reasons why he leaves at the end of this story, because it's the completion of that first story arc, which was meant to be contained all in one season. Mm. The Zygons never appeared in the classic series again, though they've featured on audio many times, and have had two major appearances, I, I think it's at least two, in the new series. This would also be Nicholas Courtney's last appearance in the 1970s as the Brigadier, though he would return no less than three times in the 1980s, once in the 90s, which we don't like to talk about, and several times on audio for Big Finish, as well as his final appearance and character on the Sarah Jane Adventures. To write this story, the production team tapped a writer who'd never done the show before, and this may account for the overall high quality of the scripts, well, relatively high quality. In my opinion, anyway, Robert Banks Stewart was an actual Scotsman, as well as a former journalist who went on to be a screenwriter and then TV producer. He was responsible for producing the first season of Lovejoy, which some fans on this side of the pond remember quite well. He also wrote for The Avengers, which may explain why his two scripts for the show seem very much like Avengers scripts with side of science fiction, which basically is any Avengers script, come to think of it. In addition to this story, he would go on to write Seeds of Doom at the end of this season, not to be confused with the Troughton story Seeds of Death, though it often is. And in addition to that season finale, he was also tapped to write the season finale of the following season in a story called Foe from the Future. When he proved to be unavailable to write the script, Robert Holmes took the seeds of that story, <laughs> seeds in, and wrote The Talons of Wing Chiang, about which we will likely say quite a lot when we get there. Foe from the Future was eventually adapted by Big Finish in 2012, and Stewart died in 2016. Now, 
There are two other reasons the Stewart scripts stand out, mainly because they were both directed by veteran director Douglas Canfield, who did The Crusade, The Dalek Master Plan, and the first two episodes of Inferno, among others. And both were scored by Jeffrey Bergon, supposedly because Canfield refused to use regular composer Dudley Simpson, though there's not much proof to the claim that there was a feud between them. I've actually looked into that, and it looks like it may actually have been blown out of proportion by fans, but yeah. <laughs> don't have to have a feud with someone to not like their work. Exactly, and that may actually have been it, though. The article that I found said something along the lines of Dudley Simpson simply wasn't available for the uh, recordings of those two stories, which doesn't really make a lot of sense, but there you go. The combination of Canfield's atmospheric direction and Bergon's absolutely gorgeous score make those two stories really stand out, despite their other flaws, and believe me, they have them. The biggest flaw in this story, and let's just dress the scarism in the room, shall we, <laughs> is the eponymous monster, which looks very impressive on the cover of the book, but on screen it's um, somewhat less so. As a matter of fact, what I'd like to do before we go any further is I know Trey knows what it looks like. I would like to show Allison and Dalton what it looks like so that they can get a true sense of what we're talking well, about which here. scene? Because there's two. There's the stop motion and then there's the puppet. Well, I want to show them the stop motion one because that one is pretty, pretty much as bad. But the puppet at the end is beautiful. It's so cute. Okay, okay, okay. I'll show them both. How's that? <laughs> okay. Are you happy? Yes. All <laughs> right. So this is the scene of the Scarazin chasing the doctor across the moor. And you'll be able to hear some of the music as well. That's the doctor running away. For those of you who can't have video at home. And here it comes. <laughs> not exactly, not even 36 points of articulation. Zero points of articulation, so far as we can tell. Just wait, it gets better. Just gliding across the frame. <laughs> they don't have the technology to make the neck. Um, well, they do. You <laughs> <laughs> have a terrible prick. Flip <laughs> yes. disc, can't move a thing. He needs a chiropractor very badly. Okay, lots of shots of Tom Baker running, which is actually quite impressive, to be honest, because he sells it, at least. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And... Much more spinal fluidity than the monster. And we get the Tom Baker scream, which we never really talk about. He has a very odd expression of pain. Oh, bless. <laughs> and so one he's so afraid of articulation. Mandible. He's so afraid of oh, yes. <laughs> I'm looking at you. Better. It's very. <laughs> oh. Okay, let's forward a little bit because that's not all of it. Here we go. <laughs> It's at least better than the dinosaurs and invasion of the dinosaurs. And that's a Saigon. The Saigons are quite good. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are. The Grinch, but he's turned evil. <laughs> but not like good cartoon Grinch, like uh, Jim Carrey Grinch. 
And that is, of course, Cliffhanger. Let me see if I can find the bit with when he's coming up the Thames. So while you're that... looking for that, I need to talk about my obsession with the cover. And I can't look at the original cover without thinking of Looney Tunes. <laughs> yes. You know, because like, the concentric circles there, and Tom Baker is just like Porky Pig, and he's like, that's awful. So, you know, so like, I kind of look at the cover, and it's which then makes the scarison all the more appropriate. Yeah, no, I, I didn't see it before, and now how could I not see it? Just to add about the book, since we're talking about covers, well, it's one of the weird ones where it was called the Loch Ness Monster, but then for the 90s Blue Spine reprint, they retitled it back to Terror of the Zygons. Hmm. And the cover for that reprint is actually really gorgeous. It's really well done. Yeah, I agree. And it's worth mentioning that this also came out as a Pinnacle edition, and the Pinnacle edition has a really nice cover. Yeah, it does. It certainly does. But obviously the Scarison, and I can't find that scene. Well, they, they use a hand puppet. And where he's rising out of the River Thames. So you see, it, it really looks like a puppet kind of like looking around, <laughs> you know, with a fake background with these pre-recorded scream sound effects on the soundtrack. It's really quite something. Yeah. While we're Googling around the detritus of pop culture, I invite everyone to Google Return to Mayberry Lake Monster. Oh, God, no. So there's a 1980s TV movie. <laughs> I know what you're talking <laughs> about. A, an Andy Griffith show reunion movie wherein there is a lake monster <laughs> that looks yes. more like this one than you would think. The technology it did not improve that much. Apparently, it's 1986. Apparently, you can purchase a DVD at Target.com. I recommend that you not do so. Um, <laughs> so but if you uh, Google Return to Mayberry Lake Monster and click over to images, uh, you will find the very first image is a pretty realistic representation <laughs> of a lake monster which is a sort of plastic costume head that has been... Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so the the way the lake monster moves is that the lake uh, is a flooded surface mine or quarry, and it had a little bit of a cart track in it. So someone has affixed a plastic head to an old (laughs) coal cart. (laughs) So it's a Scooby-Doo plot. And along the track (laughs) in the the lake. I don't know what the exact means of locomotion is and using it to... It's so adorable. Look (laughs) at him. (laughs) Also, yes, also has a rather charming uh, tilted head. I think we're looking at a a similar budget here. Similar level of technology. Oh, my God. Well... Similar um, locomotion. (laughs) <laughs> well, obviously that flaw isn't as obvious on the page, thank goodness, even though Dix does go out of his way to show us just how much of a Bond villain Broton really is. I've got to say, I was not imagining it as being much better. The other flaw, though, compared to the previous one, is a bit like going to a Trump rally and complaining that both sides aren't being represented, is that the location filming was not done in Scotland, but in West Sussex. Yeah, there's, there's apparently a big difference. Also, that opening scene of the TARDIS arriving invisibly was filmed, and it even appears on one of the VHS releases, but it doesn't appear in the televised. This is Dick's seventh novelization, written in that same year that he did five others. Wow. And that wasn't even his busiest year, by the way. In 1980, no less than nine books came out under Dick's byline. 
Did he have like a bookie after him or something? Mm. (laughs) I guess so. Well, I wouldn't have thought of the target money being all that lucrative, but he did say that it kept him fairly comfortable after he left Doctor Who. So I guess there's something to that. Well, we need a dramatic reading of the back cover. I volunteer Trey because (laughs) I just do. Oh, well, I don't know if I have the right edition. Because this is the opening quote on the facsimile edition. Harry stared in amazement at the fierce head on the immensely long neck. The huge body with two low humps. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) With a flat, powerful tail. We must be under Loch Ness, he gasped. And that thing, that's the monster. Dear God. Well, this one's not quite as salacious as that, so... (laughs) All right, Trey, I am displaying my screen to you now. Why is Doctor Who suddenly summoned to the shores of Loch Ness? Terror and panic spread as a third oil rag is smashed into the sea by a mysterious force. The monster? The controlling power must be the Zygons! Alien creatures who have lived hidden on Earth for thousands of years and now feel strong enough to take over the planet. The Doctor, Sarah, and Unit have different ideas but can they outwit the supreme cunning of the ruthless Zygons? Well, let's hope they can outwit the supreme cunning of the ruthless Zygons, because if they can't, they're in trouble. (laughs) Oil rag? That's what I heard, oil rag. Well, maybe. (laughs) Molotov cocktail construction? Well, I'm not (laughs) reading it again, Tony, so... (laughs) No, that's fine. That's fine. That's a very good monster laugh, Dalton. <laughs> yes, I would killing. say so. <laughs> oh, God. So, Allison, your first impressions on this one. Well, I thought this one was a lot of fun, but I might think that all of the audio ones are fun because this is my third audio book. So maybe it's just the absence of eye strain, furrowing my brows at them on my small phone screen. But I thought the Brigadier was especially fun in this one, except for one bone I have to pick with his representation. I thought that he had a very fun turn here, especially if we're not going to see him again for a while. Okay, Dalton. (laughs) Going back to the cover, it appears that the Zygon is admiring the Doctor's scarf, and (laughs) this Garrison is uh, enjoying the scent that he's wearing. Um, So that's just uh, my little two cents from the cover. Having seen the Zygons in the the new series, I kind of knew a little bit about what we'd be in store for, and it, it pretty much followed what I thought, you know, mistaken identities, people being uh, confused by the Zygons in their human forms. It seems that some of the rules of how the Zygons transform is different from mm-hmm. what I'm used to, with them having to keep the person that they're transforming into in the pod or in, in their own uh, captivity. But yeah, so I, I kind of knew what to be looking for with this one. So I, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Trey? Oh, I'm trying to remember what my first impression was because it was one of the pinnacles. So it was one of the first ones that I had. I remember not understanding. I remember thinking Sister Lament was a nun because it was sister. Right. So I remember very clearly imagining a nun. And then when I saw it on TV, she wasn't a nun. I remember being very confused and not really getting it. And then when I reread it a little bit older after I had seen the TV, I I remember thinking it was, "Eh, okay, I guess it's passable as a novelization. I think the novelization-ness of it in my just recent rereading of it um, stood out a little bit more. I guess my reaction was it's kind of there. It didn't really do much for me one way or the other. 
Okay. I certainly did not see Harry's exit at the end coming. Ah, I deliberately did that. I wanted to make sure that that was a bit of a surprise for both you and Dalton. And very casual, too. So, Mm -hmm. are you getting back in? No, I don't think so. (laughs) And just about as casual as he got in to begin with. Yeah, I was going to say, it it didn't really hit me as much because, yeah, he he just seemed kind of uh, temporary in the first place. Exactly. But I thought he, like the uh, Brigadier, had some, some fun character moments in here. Once again, we are going to be not seeing him. Yeah. This is nonchalance about, okay, so this whole thing, the aliens, uh, who uh, is so uh, fixated on, on trying to terrify the humans and so hum- uh, so uh, frustrated when he can't do it very well, is explaining he will be taking our planet because his is damaged. And Harry's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before. How, how are we actually going to do it? Do you have a good plan in place? So Harry's blaséness worked very well for me in this one. Yeah, he's actually much more blasé on the page. And I appreciate that because at this point, Harry would know a lot more about this whole space-time travel jazz, even though technically he really hasn't done all that much of it compared to Sarah. But he was allowed in this story to have a much more realistic build-up of experience, whereas I get frustrated sometimes when the companions still seem so wide-eyed and stupid after half a dozen adventures. Well, wide-eyed with wonder is one thing. Wide-eyed with, who knew things like that could happen? (laughs) After they've seen things exactly like that happen over and over is different. That's probably why, and I've told this story before, that the very first Doctor Who ever that I encountered was seeing the last bit of this story on a Sunday when I was a kid. And it was the scene in which Harry is confronting Broton right after he's taken the Doctor hostage. And for some reason, I thought Harry was the Doctor, because at that point, he does have this almost leading man quality that he doesn't really have in the other stories, which is interesting. Ian Martyr is just amazing in this story, to be honest. When he's the Zygon copy, he's really scary. That's exactly what I was going to say. He is terrifying as the uh, Zygon Harry, and that's exactly what's needed there. So where do we want to start with this? I guess we can start with Harry, right? Because, uh, Allison, you said that you appreciated some of the stuff that was going on with him. What else did you like? Uh, I like that he was the one to be kidnapped and rescued. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Give Sarah a day off. Okay. No, I, I liked overall, I thought he was allowed to have a sense of humor that seem to have developed in a very natural way relative to what he's experienced so far. All it right. wasn't so cynical and dead. It w- well, I, I should actually back up. It was so the reader of the the book on tape was delightful. And I'll have to ask Tony what the provenance of what that was because it seemed to be unedited. It seemed like imagine like your favorite uncle sitting down and reading a novel straight through for you with no editing and no takes. And he's very good at it, but it's also not perfect. And he doesn't actually always remember which accent he's doing for which character, but it's always fun. So where did that recording come from, Tony? I'm going to ask Trey that. I'm assuming because it hasn't been released as part of the official thing, some of the target novelizations have been recorded for what they call RNIB, which is like Readers Something National Institute for the Blind. And what's happened is we're not supposed to have access to those audiobooks. 
It's mm. only people <laughs> who've qualified who are blind. So you do have some of them that have been recorded twice at this point where there was the RNIB version and then the one that's been commercially released and maybe with a completely different narrator. Allison, were there, was there much, in, was it like the others? Was, was there sound effects and music and everything or was it more of nope, a straight? just re- one guy reading, doing yeah, different okay. then that's the first- that was That was one of the RNIB ones because um, this is one that hasn't been released in the main range and that's a characteristic difference. So that's that's well, what's going on there. And there weren't errors, more like you know, when you're reading aloud, you don't quite know where a sentence is going to end up and you would have done a different inflection if you had known what was coming. More of those mm-hmm. sorts of things in there. When he's mm-hmm. reading it, it looks he what, at, at the very beginning, he's just reading off the cover page and he says something like, something like and it's by Terrence Dix. Like he's not just reading the page, he's telling you, and it's written by Terrence Dix, which is almost certainly not what it says word for word on the page. Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster. It's based on the BBC television serial Doctor Who and the Terror of the Zygons by Robert Banks Stewart, and it's written by Terence Dix. Chapter 1, Death from the Sea. I don't know if these these RNIB ones are done for profit or if the people are paid. I did you not know. sell it or make a profit, so I don't think that I in any way... Uh, no, 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 but what I'm saying... Adulterated the sacredness. These aren't for sale to the general public, whereas like the other audio ones are. And it's a smaller audience, so I wonder if there's like less quality control, where if it was like from the main range, if those things would have been done with the retake or something. Yes, yes. And yet it's my favorite one that I've heard. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. It's like I said, it's just like someone who is imperfect, but very good at reading books aloud, sits down and reads your story. I can almost guarantee it was that because I assigned my students this semester for my pandemic literature class, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. And the only audio book available, period, is one that was recorded for that program. And they have released that, though it's actually non-commercially, and it can be found very easily on YouTube. The only reason I couldn't listen to it is because they they got someone without a British accent to read it. It's like, okay, how is 18th century British English going to sound coming out of some guy from Jersey? It just doesn't sound quite right. But I'll drop in a clip of that in the actual podcast episode so that our listeners can hear it, because now you've got me curious, especially since I was the one that gave you that audiobook. (laughs) Some of the amusing variations include that the first time you hear the American oil executive, he sounds like sort of a surly and drunken Gregory Peck. The brigadier winced as Huckle's fist thumped on the table again. Three rigs gone in a month. I mean, my company's losing millions. I mean, if this keeps up, there won't be a man willing to work out there. Huckle broke off. A particularly loud wail from the bagpipes drowned his words. Do we have to put up with that hullabaloo? And then he has kind of a different American accent later on. (laughs) You know it's the same guy. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Well, what made this one of your favorites, Allison? I think partly the reader was so fun. And I I think that was actually a big part of it, the, the format. And like I said, I felt that Harry and the Brigadier were in fine form relative to what we've seen from those characters. I didn't know it was going to be uh, the last of both of them for a while. Uh, Although I do have one major objection to the Brigadier's characterization. We're told something about he's so conservative that he could not... Let me see. I actually looked this up in the book. I was so outraged. Uh, The Brigadier's conservative temperament boggled at the idea that a member of the aristocracy could be mixed up in shady things. He has seen plenty of shady aristocrats. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> he would be shocked if they were not up to something <laughs> but i i, I was amu- 
I was easily amused by the humor, uh, you know, the innkeeper, uh, you know, taking his revenge. He's annoyed the brigadier about something. He's taking his revenge by, you know, practicing his instrument loudly. And <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of wishing that J.G. McCrory from Talking Who to You could have been with us on this particular episode because he's our resident Scots expert. But apparently... Even though the script was written by a Scotsman, it's got tons of Scottish stereotypes, which are almost invisible to American eyes. I thought they were pretty visible. <laughs> no, do they really? Haggis, <laughs> Sassanax. Oh, God, I, I even noted that mm -hmm. in my notes on the very first page. Very first frickin' page. Haggis and Sassanax in the same page. It's just insanity. But after that, it kind of calms down. I mean, apart from the mention of the doctor taking salt in his porridge and saying that he developed a taste for it during the Jacobite Rebellion, which, of course, means he somehow found time to have porridge when he was having that adventure with Jamie, Polly, and Ben. I just don't know where that would fit. Probably when he was dressed in drag at the inn. Oh, yeah, because you always want to have porridge when you're dressed in drag. Oh, I know, mm -hmm. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there was some like me because a friend and I went to a southern restaurant in the suburbs of Chicago about a year ago, and he was about to, I swear to God, put syrup on grits. Mm -hmm. And I accidentally caused a bit of a scene saying, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Like what? I like him. Like, oh God, what? Why would a person do such a thing? <laughs> Much of the rest of our conversation, as I explained, this wasn't like a snobbish judgment, like the whole, you know, never put ketchup on a Chicago dog thing. That's not even like a real culinary thing. It's just something people do as sort of a, a marker of whether or not you're accepted in the end group or something like that. This was more like if he put syrup on one of his children, I couldn't have been more shocked. <laughs> like, why would you put syrup on a baby? Why would you put syrup on a... <laughs> because at least that has a purpose. In grits. I'm like, no, no, no. Don't put anything on grits that you wouldn't on, on steak. Or Anyway, so my point is, if there's a rule like this with porridge, <laughs> I was amused to hear about it. I, I, relate, I related to the outrage of, you want sugar and cream? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like some of us growing up and being taught that the way to eat rice, cooked rice, is with sugar and milk. What? Yeah, which I, I would never do now. Yeah, it's one of those... Uh, I Not rice pudding, it's... but just, like, grains. No, sugar and milk. Yeah, lots of people do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, in certain parts of the South and certain parts of Michigan, that's exactly how people do. So, yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, it's really bizarre, but I agree with you about the grits. It's a bit strange. Whereas porridge, I just don't know why porridge would taste better with salt in it. Anyway, that is a new scene, and it's... I, I like the fact that Dix has actually added some stuff to this again for once, It's and his additions for once are actually pretty good ones. I'm really surprised at that. Yeah, there's a lot of characterization moments. Like, they're just tiny little bits of characterization. They're not so much plot additions. Like, the Brigadier getting grumpy that, you know, everyone's gone missing, so he's just going to boss around some of the men. You know, I, li I liked those little moments. 
Mm -hmm. Though I'm not too fond of the fact not only is the brigadier upset that anyone should think that he was sleeping on duty, but that somebody should fall asleep on duty in front of him. It's like, (laughs) seriously? Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart, you know that you've seen soldiers be knocked unconscious before. This can't be something new to you. Uh, what else did we like about this? What else stood out to us? What else do we want to talk about? What stood out to me was more of a stylistic thing. And maybe maybe he always does this, or maybe I was just more aware of it. I think I was a little bit more aware of it because I had finished listening to an audio book of Keeper of Trocken, which is later on, but it's also a Terrence Dix adaptation. And there's a subplot of surveillance. But I got really interested in like all the parenthetical moments. There was a lot of things in parentheses. And it kind of struck me because you first kind of see it when it's one of the scenes in the end and you've got the stag's head. And then it says in parentheses, in a control room, claw waved over a screen that was watching it. That's a very visual storytelling technique. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense in a script where you kind of see this mysterious claw, but you don't want to reveal the alien yet. But I think on a certain level, it's just, it's weird in terms of a book to kind of have... That And that's where I'm thinking, what's the purpose of the novelization? If it's to recreate how and when you saw on screen before they had VHS, then okay, I can see why that's there. But you would think a more artful way would be just to have the scene and then maybe cut away a section break. And what Sarah did not know was that far away eyes were had been watching, you know, or something mm-hmm. like you, you'd break it up. And there's a lot of moments where he's inserting these explanatory parenthetical expressions to basically get a sense of how Canfield directed it and what the script would have been and things that make sense in a visual storytelling, but don't make a lot of sense in prose. And once I kind of latched onto it, I, I couldn't really unsee it happening a lot, but yep. may, but there was a lot of moments like that that were just odd. It happens to Keeper of Trocking, because if you know that story, and Tony, you do, there's another element of someone watching proceedings you know, mm-hmm. throughout. So all the stuff, where whether it's the Zygons and their spaceship, but all those scenes where the Zygons are watching things or having to explain why the Zygon's now inhuman or it's not. What's very dramatic and fun to watch on screen just seemed to be messy and convoluted on the page. So now I just want to see this episode remade by Ron Howard as he is both reprising his role in Return to Mayberry and doing the Arrested Development voiceover. <laughs> Meet Darth Vader. He's upset because his daughter, Princess Leia, stole his secret plans. I want to know what happened to the plans. I don't know what you're talking about. She actually did. And he would have much better effects, I think. Or they could be comedically bad, but it'd be thoughtful. Well, we have discussed the fact that Terrence Six seems to be the only writer in the entire range who... Ah, that's not true. I just thought of one other example. He's the only writer bar one who uses parentheses that who's, way. Who's and the other one? Pip and Jane Baker. Oh, oh, oh yes. Okay. You know exactly. Uh, yeah, no, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody who's read that particular book knows what I'm talking about. We will get there. It'll be a few years, but we'll get there. Just remember this, won't you? Thank you. Yes, but Dix is the only other one who does it, and that really does show his training as a script editor because he thinks in terms of script, and that's I think that's why he's got such a reputation of being such a script-to-page person because sometimes it literally is copied directly over, and I think you were on to something there, Trey, when you said he seems to be aping 
Douglas Canfield's direction. And sure enough, that bit where Broton is watching them, that's exactly where that shot comes in, in the televised version. And there's no need for it in the book. In fact, it would be better if we didn't know that they had been bugged the whole time. Right, yeah. It loses some of the drama and Mm -hmm. and mystery, exactly. Yeah, just a bit of it. Well, there there is that. (laughs) What else? Dalton, you said that you were kind of prepared for the Zygons because you'd seen them in the new series, but you said that some of the rules had changed and you said that there were some differences. Yeah, from what I remember in the newer series... Whenever they turn into somebody else, whenever they transform, as far as I remember from what I've seen, they didn't have to hold the person captive so that they have a uh, a version a of print. yeah for for an update or you know whatever of their transformation. And as far as I remember too, their transformation didn't take time. We're talking about we have the little asides from Terrence Dixon. There's even a note later in, in this where he talks about how when they're turning from their human form to their Zygon form, it's pretty instantaneous. But if they're going from their Zygon form to their human form, it takes a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember that happening. I remember it being yeah. pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, it's more like a morphing effect in the new series, if I remember correctly, yeah. with a bit of spitting of vomit in the middle. <laughs> I never understood that. It's so disgusting when the the Zygon who's impersonating Kate does that little before she turns back into a Zygon. It's like, why would you do that? Well, Terrence Dix does describe them as grotesque evil babies, so. They are that. (laughs) (laughs) They're very impressive, though. They don't have gurgling voices. They're very Trumpian than a grotesque evil baby. Oh, God, especially Broton. Oh, good God. Because, of course, he would be the sort to try to overawe somebody and then be upset when they're not overawed by his, yes. you know, lies and what have you. Ironically, I am editing this just 20 minutes after Biden was declared winner of the presidential race, so that will probably be the last Trump joke we'll be doing for a very long time. You're welcome. Now back to the show. Oh, dear. So I thought it was interesting that there are two different instances wherein the doctor is preparing to brush Sarah off and he realizes that she's right about something. And this is only my, it's my third or fourth Tom Baker doctor story. So is that typical? Of what specifically of him seeming to brush off Sarah and then realizing she's right? Well, there, I think they might both have to do with some sort of transponder. You know, she says something like, well, isn't whoever put this equipment here going to figure out you're messing around with it? And he's about to say something flippant. He's like, oh, she's actually right. And later it's something very similar where she says something intelligent and he's astounded. <laughs> Not astounded, but, but seems surprised. <laughs> that first instance is actually Dick's revising a scene and changing the tone of it very significantly. I don't find that I mind the revision that much, even though I prefer the original. But in that one, she's making a joke about the jamming device. And what if they jam that too? On the page, he says, oh, you know, maybe I better do something about that. On screen, he glares at her because he knows that she's making a joke. What's that? Uh, if you're interested, the brig's on the quayside watching wreckage being brought ashore. Hmm. Hmm. Thought that'd interest you. He's being very secretive. If you ask me, he's wasting his time. Oh, yes, might as well forget about security in Tullock. Landlord here's got second sight. You know what he was playing? Flowers of the Forest. 
A lament for the dead. What is that thing you're fiddling with? It's part of a radio probe system used for checking localized jamming. Well, what if that gets jammed too? <laughs> Hello, Fox in. Hmm. As for the second one, it's almost see. the opposite meaning. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And it's unusual for Dix to give her more, <laughs> but occasionally he will do it. I've already started reading ahead a little bit. He he does this too in Planet of Evil, which I appreciate. He actually gives Sarah a lot more of a backbone, and there are times when she actually corrects the Doctor, and the Doctor takes it and is perfectly fine with it. I was just wondering if we were going back to a more sort of Hartnell-esque contempt for the companion and being surprised when the companion has anything worthwhile to say. Mm, not, of course, that was not just sort really. of a sort of a, a hiccup in this story. The fourth doctor is a very tetchy doctor. He has something of a temper. I thought the nice moment that Dix gave us with Sarah is talking about she's going to go into the village and conduct interviews and how her strength is that she knows that people can't wait to let you know they have a secret <laughs> that they can possibly tell you. And I thought that was sort of a nice, a nice insightful moment. Not, not so much about her, but more about, you know, about conducting interviews and investigations and playing off people's vanity. Well, he also calls her an experienced journalist at that point. And that's a nice touch, because I think that's the first time that... Even Dix has said anything about Sarah actually being a professional rather than just another reporter. She's actually an experienced journalist, and she does find things that were... We don't actually see those things on screen, for instance. Yeah, and Barry Letts liked to do that in his fill-in novels. But yeah, but that's not on screen. There is one odd thing. There's a change that he makes, and it drives me crazy because it opens up a bit of a plot hole. And that happens in chapters 8 and 9. And I think Trey will know what I'm talking about here. That the Doctor seems to know that the Duke of Forgill is an alien in chapter 8. Yes, mm -hmm. or suspect that there's something yeah. is up with him and probably he's an alien, yeah. Yeah, and we see it from Sarah's point of view. That Sarah's being very perspicacious there. She can tell something's up by the way the Doctor's talking yeah. to him. Mm -hmm. And it's much more tense on the page that way, which is great. But then you get to chapter nine and you realize the change to the script runs into a big problem. If the doctor always suspected that it was the Duke, then why would he leave Sarah there in danger? I thought that was addressed in the book. Like he suspected something was up, but not that it would be this or that it would be this bad. Yeah, it, it still feels odd compared to the televised story where you don't have that undercurrent going. And the doctor's like, oh, yeah, you can stay. And he doesn't even question it. But here he actually questions it and then thinks, oh, well, it, it is addressed, but it's not addressed in a way that would need to be addressed if he had stuck to the way it was originally. Yeah. But there's also that line about um, them knowing where Sarah would be at. So, oh, yeah. So if anything happens and she goes missing, then, yeah, they would know. I also kind of felt like it was maybe a little bit of a way of the doctor kind of using her as bait. <laughs> without being so explicit about it, you know? Oh, my goodness. Because he knows how Sarah is. There's even there's even the mention. I know, I know how she is. I know what she's going to do, and she's going to get into things no matter what. So 
She'll be okay. Mm. I could see the second doctor or the seventh doctor doing something like that, <laughs> or maybe even the tenth doctor. I'm not so sure about the fourth doctor. Yeah, I wasn't but... sure if it was supposed to be bait or that he trusts her to get the job done or he expects her to mess it up and draw him out. It's it's really complicated, isn't it? Yeah. But that actually kind of worked for me. You're not actually entirely sure what's going on in the same way that Sarah's not entirely sure what's going on, but she's playing along with something. She doesn't know what. The doctor's not entirely sure what's going on, but he knows the Duke is not just who he says he is. Yeah. And for Sarah, this is a pretty strong story to begin with. I mean, she's obviously the damsel in distress at the end of the first episode because she gets attacked and then put in the uh, hyperbaric chamber. But then it becomes Harry. And as you said, Allison, Harry is the one who gets kidnapped and then has to be rescued and all of that. And it's a nice change in touch. And Sarah gets to be the action hero a couple times. Normally, I like the Terrence Dicks uh, added on prologues, but yeah, this one where the <laughs> Scottish Quill Rig manager is just ordering his weight and haggis. <laughs> not one of his stronger efforts. Yeah, no. That pretty much, if I remember correctly, is script a page. So, what else do we want to talk about? There's multiple times where the Zygon ship is described as being grown as opposed to something that was built. There's a lot of body horror elements in here. It reminded me of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with the Zygons being able to duplicate themselves and look like people. The bits with Transistor attaching itself to the Doctor and he's unable to shake it off and he sees that it's kind of uh, grown tentacles. It isn't really safe they've dug into his skin, but it's definitely attached itself so that it can't be thrown away. And and then talking to about the cyborg of this garrison to how they've taken a uh, an organic life form and augmented it with different technologies to make it uh, react. Now, I, I hate to admit this because usually I watch these stories before we record and after I've read the book, but and I hate to admit this because this is one of my favorite stories, but I cannot remember in the original story if there's much of a mention of it being a cyborg. Uh, how often does that come up, Trey? Ooh, I, I can't remember. I think it might be mentioned offhandedly, because there is a bit that they feed off its lactate stuff, and I want to see some <laughs> nursing Zygons, because, you know, we've got the little angry God. baby thing, and, you know, there needs to be some, like, you know, so, some sucking some oh. scares and titty, you know, that you needs to happen. You just want some oral action on screen. Well, yeah, well, want. I mean, well, they, they're they covering all those suckers. So, like, you know, it makes sense. I mean, it's... Oh, Jesus. But no, how the fuck does that happen? How, how, from an evolutionary point of view, how did they learn feed? They're so dependent upon it. And, and what's going to happen to the poor Zygon with no one to drink its milk now? Or not the, the Scarison, you know? Apparently it's, go... it's gone free willy. Like <laughs> I thought that was just supposed to be you inspiring at the end. Oh, the monster is free to oh, explore God. and eat new people. No, it's going back home. <laughs> to Loch Ness, the only home that it's known. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Didn't they say they brought it as a hatchling or something? So what yes, were they embryo. feeding on? Yes, what I like the bit about, are you on? telling me the monster commutes? <laughs> it's a space alien that commutes. <laughs> and that bit of having dentures? Yeah. I, I was like, that, it's, that's new. And I don't know why it's there. It's an alien with false teeth that commutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's an alien with false teeth Several that pages apart, but yeah. <laughs> 
I just don't get it. And I don't get how the doctor arrives at the conclusion that the dentures mean that it must be a cyborg. It's like, um, um, it doesn't have to be this complicated, you know. <laughs> it can just be a trained monster. That's all it needs to be. Except we need to be able to see the point of view when the Zygons send it out to kill somebody. I guess that's why. Yeah, Robocop uh, mode. Yeah, exactly. But you're right about the body horror. In fact, on screen, it's genuinely creepy how well the story is done in that regard because the set design is wonderful and the Zygons themselves are just just amazing. I mean, that's probably why they brought them finally brought them back for the new series because they really are impressive. Unfortunately, they've also kind of handicapped them a little bit. Well, and I think this goes back to one of my points that I've been making in this latest run and the gap between what is good on TV because of the story and what is good on TV despite the story. And I think this is another one where it's for me like Genesis, maybe not as pronounced, but no, I think one of the reasons we're, oh, what do we talk about on this one? It's a very run-of-the-mill, bog-standard alien invasion with a little bit of a Scottish remix to it. There's nothing that remarkable about the story. It's not doing anything really interesting with the body doubles or anything along those lines so it's just kind of there it's great on tv i love it on tv because it's so atmospheric and it's designed well and it's executed well apart from the scarison but it's not like a story like say arc in space where it has really big interesting ideas that make you interested i don't know if that makes sense but it does though i'd i'd really have to disagree uh, only because you're right the story itself is nothing special but dick seems to be having a lot of fun doing this particular book. I think I probably quoted more sections of this one than I have in a very long time. He's having a ball. I don't disagree with you on that, but that's why I said, like, most of the fun, though, is being had with the characters and not the story. Like, those little character touches, Mm. like the salted porridge. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true. And it does say something about the direction, the performances, the music, and Dix's writing that something that, if it had been done differently, would have ended up being so pedestrian. It's amazing that it was only the monster that ended up being weak about this story, because it really could have been. It really could have been just terrible. I have to admit, any book where you have a line like, all right, Broton, you said you wanted my body, now what are you going to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> I love lines like that. Harry says that, says that to all the sailors, doesn't he? <laughs> Possibly. Needed to get back to his ship and his work. That's why he left. Uh huh. I'm just being filthy right now because Ian Mart is, you know, attractive. Right now. Of course he is. Yes. Yes, he is. (laughs) There are quite a few like that. I, I mean, not just lascivious lines. I mean, things like. Sure enough, the headlights of the Land Rover picked up the doctor's tall form about ten minutes later. He was trudging rather wearily towards home. Even for the doctor, it had been a long, hard day. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. And that he has Sarah and Benton sitting around eating chocolate later on. There's a humor there that is often absent, that he, he is having fun and he's enjoying himself with the characters. And I, I do like that. I do appreciate that. Yeah. I would agree that a lot of the humor is incidental to the specifics of the situation rather than integral to the plot. Or a lot of the enjoyable elements of the story are much more character-based and the, the micro-situation-based rather than based in the story itself, which is perfectly fine, but 
But as Harry says, yes, yeah, yeah, I've seen this one before. Right. I think that really is a sign that Robert Banks Stewart comes from a background where he wrote for the Avengers. Because if you watch any of the Avengers series from the 60s, it's got that sort of character-driven humor and fun rather than the plots. In fact, the plots are quite often nonsensical. That's going to be certainly true for his next script as well. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, absolutely for that one and yet (laughs) and yet it also stands out and if if i remember correctly i have fond memories of the binnacle version of that book too there's just something about this one that is better than the stories around it in so many ways it's refreshing to see that dicks can still do this but then it's still early days too well it's also and and as you start getting into these the Tom Baker Dixie, you almost get a sense of like which ones he enjoyed writing, which one he was like, well, fine, I just have to do it. So it's almost like any story that's by Robert Holmes originally, he puts more effort into it. Mm. And if it's Bob Baker and Dave Martin, he's a little bit more meh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for damn true. <laughs> that's probably why he didn't want to do Suntarn Experiment. He's just like, oh, these guys again. Oh, terrible bad enough to deal with on the three doctors they're just wonderful lines all the way through this but you can tell that robert bank stewart is looking at this with satirical eye because where else would you get a line like i underestimated his intelligence but he underestimated the power of organic crystallography (laughs) (laughs) i love it whenever the fourth doctor's taunting the bad guys like that that probably influenced a lot of my childhood behavior more than I'd like to admit in school. But, <laughs> you know, when he says, you can't just rule, you're going to have to come out and wave a claw at some point or another. <laughs> and I like those moments. Okay, so what else do we like or what do we dislike? Anything else you want to talk about? Um, just speaking of kind of like a humorous moment or like a character moment, whenever Sarah's walking down into the ship, and she gets to that moving door. And I'm just, I'll am just i just read the passage. It says, To her astonishment, and began to rise silently into the roof. Alarm, Sarah jumped back. The door came back down. Sarah moved forward. The door went up, and she passed underneath it. Immediately, the door came back down again, and Sarah, feeling trapped, started to run back. Obligingly, the door rose to let her through. Reassured, she went on with her journey. So yeah, just her, like, playing around with it, you know, like a kid, uh, first time seeing a, a sliding well, she door. She seem like the brightest bulb in that scene. <laughs> well, I mean, she knows that she's going into the ship of, of the Zygons, so she's like, mm-hmm. am I going to get trapped? Am I not going to get trapped? Is it going to... Uh, 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 uh. Oh, okay, I'm good. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of, it's, it's just playful. I'm glad you pointed that out, Dalton, because it also brings up something that Dix does with this book that he hasn't been doing a lot with the books around it, which is making an honest effort at trying to reproduce the performance on the page. Mm-hmm. Because that bit with the door is Liz Sladen going back and forth, and it is really fun on screen as well. And it's one of those things that if it had appeared in another story, he might have actually said, oh, that's too much trouble to render on the page. I'm not going to bother with it. I'm just going to, you know, pass over it. Here he's making the effort, which I definitely appreciate. Oh, we have another one of his trying to upsell one of his other books. At the very end, The Three Doctors by Taron Sticks, published (laughs) right before this book, wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. (laughs) And does anybody else get that final joke? Did they have return tickets? 
Yes, I imagine so. You should have taken them and got your refund, man. I thought you were a Scotsman. I have always interpreted kind of like, is there a stereotype that Scottish people are cheap or something along those lines? Or I guess I don't know. I'd have to ask J.G. McCrory about it or one of our Scottish listeners. Please tell us why that is supposed to be so funny, because it's the way the story ends and it's the way the book ends. And it's just odd. It's almost like you're really. expecting like a Scooby-Doo laugh track at the end, you yeah. know, where they're like, <laughs> <laughs> And it's just, it's... Well, we are going to get a few stories that do exactly that. Maybe those listeners, if they exist, will be relieved that that, (laughs) whatever stereotype that is, has finally died. (laughs) They don't want to remind people of it, whatever it is. The other Robert Banks story, at least the televised version, ends on a similar sort of weird joke. Oh, God, does it ever... But at least that one makes a little more sense, unless, of course, you've looked at the story and realized, wait a minute, that shouldn't be happening. (laughs) I'm not going to give it away just yet, but when we get there, I can't remember if Dix fixes it in the book. I think he does not. Well, if it's Philip Hinchcliffe who does that one. Oh, wait, that's right. It's Philip Hinchcliffe, so it's probably not fixed. (laughs) It's probably exacerbated. (laughs) Well, that's just me. Sorry. (sighs) Ah. anything else you want to say? I just going back to my thought about Sister Lamont being a nun. And I remember in my developmental and my spiritual awakenings, I remember wondering, reading this, I, I have this memory now that just came back of wondering about how this encounter would have shaped, because I'm thinking she's a nun throughout the entire thing, right? When I'm reading this. <laughs> so I was thinking, how would an alien encounter something like this affect a religious person's faith? And I remember thinking, whatever happened to Sister Lama? Because I'm glad that she and the others survived. And that's, okay, that's something that bothers me, is you do have these characters that just kind of disappear. They don't die. They're not written up. Huckle, he disappears halfway through the book. He's not dead or anything. He just kind of leaves. And he was a really important part of the plot in the first two episodes or in the first half of the book. And then he's gone without much of a reason as to where he went or anything like that. And then you've got Sister Lamont and the Caber and a similar thing. They escape from the spaceship and then... Boom, they're gone. And that's a beef I have with the story. I can see that. Well, the last one that I read was, I'm not recalling the uh, title correctly, Death Dome, <laughs> the planet with the two domed cities. What was that <laughs> Genesis story? of the Daleks. Yes, Genesis of the Daleks, which I also Death enjoyed Dome. very much, but it was a completely different tone of, of story. So this was actually a nice, fun jaunt around the village one that was a nice nice alternation in story type for me i would agree i mean there are a few things that dicks can't reproduce on the page such as the frankly creepy scene where the doctor puts sarah into a trance before putting himself into one keep looking into my eyes keep looking into my eyes you don't need to breathe do not breathe do not breathe You feel no pain. No pain. You feel nothing. You understand. Nothing. You feel nothing. That's genuinely unnerving when you watch it, whereas here it's taken care of in one page. But yeah, otherwise, he kind of nails it with this one i think so shall we go to goodreads let us go or do we have anything else to do 
Good <laughs> Do reads. we have anything else to say? I should. Say? <laughs> Sorry. Let me just look okay. through and see if there's anything else that we yeah. haven't talked about. I do like the line. It's huge. Gasps Sarah. Oh, I've seen bigger. The doctor said disparagingly. <laughs> Girl. Yeah. Exactly. Word. This is probably just like a little throwaway line and not meant to be anything larger. But whenever the doctor finally gets up with the brigadier and he's telling him about the oil rigs um, being attacked and the doctor says, oil, an emergency? It's high time this planet ceased to be so dependent on a mineral slime, if you ask me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just just kind of a throwaway. Like the doctor's just, yeah. And for that matter, that scene where he's berating the brigadier for calling him back is Dick's putting together two separate scenes because they're separated by a scene between them on screen. So I kind of like that he's compressing it like that. I also love the doctor making a loud and vulgar raspberry when there's an announcement on the ship. <laughs> yes. I, I mentioned the, right before the first Tom Baker story that my friend who since died, who loved Tom Baker so much, was an American who actually, his, his father was in oil and actually lived in Scotland while the, some of the Tom Baker episodes were on the air. And I'm curious now if he saw this one. I don't remember exactly what years he was living there, but he was, you know, young teen. And uh, what he thought about the American oil executive in this episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to wonder it myself. In fact, I thought that Huckle was Canadian. That's what I thought as well. Mm. I yeah. just assumed from the accent of the reader, actually. So. Oh, <laughs> I see. Gotcha. Yeah, on screen, he's got a very definite, well, it, it, it definitely isn't an American accent. It's not a British actor doing an American accent. It's a British actor doing that flatter accent that they do for Canadians. One last thing. To tie in with the doctor commenting about the oil, whenever he asked the Zygons what they proposed to do with the planet, Broton says the polar ice caps must go, the mean temperature will be raised several degrees, thousands of lakes constructed with the right mineral elements to breed more herds of scarce, and I shall recreate my own world here on Earth. So that just kind of plays into uh, fossil fuels fueling yeah. global warming, climate change. Yeah. And in fact, I think I said in my notes something along the lines of, well, all he needed to do was wait about 50 years for the GOP to get in power because well, they're the Trump sending us there that again. way. And they've already been patient to wait this many centuries. So what's <laughs> exactly. But maybe maybe that now? explains it. Maybe the GOP or Zygon body doubles. Well, that, that, <laughs> that would explain so, so much. That would explain Mitch McConnell's weird thing with his hands, wouldn't it? And his lips yeah. and his eyes. In his soul. He had discoloration on his hands, looking like he had some sort of severe problem. And people were joking it's because of the horcrux that he wears. Yeah. Like the human skin is itchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, it's a lizard underneath. Oh, dear. Yeah. Let's not get the podcast attacked, shall we? Oh, God. Hopefully by the time you are listening to this, things will have changed in the U.S. because we are recording this before Election Day and it'll go out after Election Day. So right. you in the future, our hopes are pinned upon you. I already voted on Tuesday. Yep, I sent mine in too. Well, 
I, I'd say that's a good sign to go to Goodreads when you say. When you you know, start I, I am imagining this fictional or theoretical listener who, up to this, who loves Mitch McConnell and this podcast, <laughs> and up to this point, <laughs> could not have believed that we would possibly disapprove. Well, it it has been known. We've still got two negative reviews on Apple, so yeah. Anyway, we don't need them. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we can have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. We may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.73. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry guys, but keep them coming. Our Patreon Dave Davis gives it three stars and says, It may be that listening to the podcast has improved my critical ability, but this book is confusion of good and bad that I probably would have missed a few months ago. You're welcome, Dave. Uh, the Loch Ness Monster is, of course, far better on the page than on screen. The scenes surrounding it, particularly when it was chasing the Doctor on the moor, couldn't really be improved, but they only served to highlight how bad the monster was anyway. There's an addition, or rather a replacement, of a scene at the beginning where the TARDIS arrives. On screen, we join the TARDIS crew as they're already marching across the moor, and there's change here, too. It's a shame that while the Doctor still wears tartan versions of his trademark hat and scarf, his normal attire isn't being worn by Sarah and Harry as it is in the TV version. Yeah, um, one of them is wearing the scarf. I think it's Harry and Sarah's wearing the hat. It's kind of cute. It's a trivial but charming sequence which wouldn't have had the same effect on the page. Besides, it was meant to reinforce the idea that we were in Scotland, which is easily established in prose. The book isn't entirely bad, far from it, and there's lots of POV and thought process exposition, most of which makes sense. There are exceptions, such as Sarah musing, soon the old stories would be true at last. There really would be a monster in Loch Ness. As the Scarison begins its journey back to Scotland, it's the same creature that's been there for centuries. But Sarah's thoughts would suggest it's going to Loch Ness for the first time. Errors like this, in a slightly disjointed narrative flow, make this book feel unfinished, as if it's an early draft sent to the printer in error. Which is a shame, <laughs> as the characters are very strong, particularly Harry, who's back on track after the backward step last time, just in time to leave as a series regular. There wasn't a moment where I felt like I was reading a third Doctor story, and even Sarah has scarcely a quivering lip. Refreshing for a Terrence Sticks book. <laughs> That's true. Michael gives it three stars as well and says, When I first started watching Doctor Who, my first jump into the world of Tom Baker as the Doctor was Terror of the Zygons. My newfound enthusiasm for the show led me to my local library, which had a collection of the pinnacle versions of the stories, so I had picked up a copy of the Loch Ness Monster days before I recorded Zygons and started watching. As a young fan, I felt like it was meant to be for me to see this story and have the novel right there to read as well. Years later, Zygons is still one of my favorite Tom Baker stories, despite the dodgy effects when it comes to the titular monster of the book. And yet the novel has a few things going for it. Dix adds back in a few things, including the Zygons having a sting that just didn't work on screen. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. We have the infamous scene of the TARDIS being invisible upon materialization, thankfully included on the DVD, and a few other minor moments. But beyond that, I can't recall this one being necessarily all that memorable. 
I will give it a reread next year when the audiobook is released, though there are pirated copies of an earlier audiobook floating around out there if you know where to look. There it is. Allison, you listen to a pirated copy. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Here to our final fans out the door. Yes, indeed. See, I recall it as being fairly close to the source material and not necessarily a terrible read, just one that was pretty adequate, as I think is the case with a lot of the Tom Baker era novels. And finally, a reviewer named Ilsa Bonaparte gives it two stars and says simply, let's just say it was very interesting and leave it at that. (laughs) That's the whole review, which is refreshing, believe it or not. So... Dalton, what would you give this out of five stars? I'm surprised she said it was very interesting and only gave it two stars. I know, right? <laughs> you have a painting I think that review is very interesting, and I'll leave it at that. That's why I kept it in there. <laughs> um, um, hmm. <laughs> Do you need a moment, honey? <laughs> no, I, I, I feel like I'm kind of in line with the Goodreads, like, like 3.5 to 4. I think Terrence Dix does a pretty good job of uh, getting the story across. There's some great character moments. The Zygons are just as uh, disturbing as they are in in the new series that I've seen. So yeah, I would split it down the middle, say 3.75 for me. (laughs) Okay. Allison? I'm going to go three stars. And once again, this is greatly enhanced by the very low affect deadpan reading that I heard, I think was perfect for the style of humor in the story as well. So it may not be one of literature's great works, but I I found it fun. And Trey? I'll give it a 3.5 because three is my usually metric of a good solid novelization of what doing what it's supposed to. And then it gets a little bit of extra credit for the fun humor and warm character moments that we discussed. Okay. And for me, it's going to be, believe it or not, 3.75, because for some reason, this one hit me really well for once. And it may be because it was one of the first Pinnacle books I read. It may be that I had to speed through it really quickly Saturday morning, so I read it in under four hours, which is, (laughs) boy, howdy, I, I would not suggest that to anybody. But it goes by very quickly, and it's very well-paced. Dix makes some good changes. He doesn't try to improve on the humor like he does in some of his other books and fail at it. The few times he does improve something, it's actually improved. Yeah, this one's pretty good. It almost goes high as a 4, but yeah, 3.75. That's good enough. So, thank you guys, and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time... We'll be doing a live show, the weekend of Chicago TARDIS, in which we will discuss Victor Pemberton's novelization of The Pescatons. Yes, we have a novelization of a record album. Boy, howdy, is this going to be fun and delicious, as Allison says. In addition to our Patreon guests, we'll be having a limited number of lucky listeners who can watch as we record the podcast via Zoom, words and all. Check out our Facebook page at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in order with spaces for more details. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook, and feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify and iTunes. If all else fails you, email me directly at emperordog at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. 
Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.